As high school graduates start arriving in Israel for a year or two in yeshiva, many people, including students considering a year in Israel in the future, their parents, as well as parents of students currently starting yeshiva, have questions and concerns. For that reason, the Orthodox Conundrum convened a panel discussion to address these concerns honestly and forthrightly. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. On Sunday, August 22nd, I recorded a panel discussion with Rabbis Jonathan Cohen, Boaz Mori, Binny Friedman, and Ruvain Terrigan that also appears as a video on the Orthodox Conundrum Facebook page. We discussed many important issues, including the purpose of the year in Israel, why it's necessary even after 12 years of Jewish education, whether success in learning is equated at the Shivot with religious and moral success, how mental health issues are addressed, preventing sexual abuse, alcohol policies, and more. Please note that this particular panel was referencing the boys' yeshivot rather than the girls' midrashot. If listeners would be interested in another panel discussion about the seminaries for young women, please let me know by writing to scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Please also note that this panel discussion is not addressing any particular yeshiva. The panel was designed to talk about how these issues are addressed in general by all the different programs. I hope you find this helpful, and as always, I look forward to hearing your feedback. Well, thank you all for joining me tonight for this uh, Facebook Live as well as podcast on the Orthodox Conundrum. The title of our panel discussion tonight is What to Expect from Your Son's Year in Yeshiva, and I'm honored to host Rav Ruvain Tarragon, Rav Boaz Mori, Rav Binny Friedman, and Rav Jonathan Cohen for tonight's program. Let me quickly introduce... Our guest, Rav Ruben Terrigan, is the Dean of Overseas Students at Yeshiva Kotel and the Educational Director of World Mizrahi and the Religious Zionists of America. Rav Terrigan is also the Rosh Beis Midrash at Camp Mosheva in Indian Orchard and Rav Kilat Eretz Chemda in Katamon. Welcome, Rav Terrigan. Rav Boaz Mori is Rosh HaYeshiva at Yeshivat Leva Torah. Before founding Leva Torah, he taught at BMT, Haaretz Sion, Shari Mevaseret Sion, and Machon Gold. Rav Boaz also served as head counselor at Camp Simcha, Rosh Chinuch at Camp Mosheva, and Camp Rabbi at IBA. Rav Bini Friedman is Rosh Yeshiva, founder and dean of Yeshivat Oraita. He is an IDF company commander in the reserves and is the author of a weekly internet, Parsha Bites which has a loyal readership of tens of thousands. You can find it at orita.org. And Rav Jonathan Cohen is the Admissions and Israel Honors Coordinator at Yeshiva University, where he's been employed for 11 years working with students during their year in Israel. He's also the Director of Professional Recruitment at NCSY. In addition, Rabbi Cohen has also taught in various yeshivot over the years and has worked in summer camps, La Via Mesora, for 24 summers, which, if you ask me, is a lot of summers. So thank you all for joining me today, and I appreciate your doing this with me. The goal for this panel is really to try as best as possible to allow parents and students who are thinking about coming to Israel, who are beginning their year in Israel, who see this as part of their future or perhaps part of their future, to understand why the year in Israel is a worthwhile experience, what it's all about, what they can expect, perhaps answer some of their questions. So I'd like to try and go through some questions which I put together as well as some which people sent me. I'm going to ask as a first question, sort of the most basic question possible, I guess I'll ask Rev. Tarragon to begin. Can you tell me, in your own words, what would you call the basic purpose of the year in Israel? First of all, it's uh, wonderful to be on the panel with such esteemed rabbis, and a big issue to Rabbi Scott Kahn for putting it together. I think the year in Israel is a chance for a young man, young woman, to step out of the way they were raised, not that there's anything wrong with how they were raised, but to be able to see life from a different perspective and specifically from the perspective of a Jewish person growing up in the Jewish state, which is a different vantage point on Judaism. So it's a chance to focus on Judaism as opposed to everything else they're dealing with in high school and to focus on it, not in France, but in the place that's as Jewish as you can be. In other words, Israel is the key component of it when you look at it, the fact they're doing it in Eretz Israel. For sure. Meaning one component is stepping out of high school where you have so many things you're involved in and your natural cultural milieu. The second side is the fact that you're immersed and engaged with Israel, with our homeland, with something genuinely 
fully Jewish. And to a very large extent, I think the modern Orthodox community in the United States and other countries has been no less than transformed since the year in Israel began because it brought people back to these communities who had this more basic, wholesome experience that they could then build communities around. And so it's really an amazing part of what Jews around the world have been able to experience. In fact, many people in Israel complain about the fact that their children don't have a year in Israel. Yeah, I actually have complained about that myself. Yes, Rabbi Boaz? You know, just to add, I agree entirely with Rabbi Tarragon. Um, I would say that, that what he supplied was the context of the year in Israel, but really the content, true for everyone on a global level, is to create a foundation, a true foundation in Torah Mitzvot, and specific to every individual, for each person to find his own personal connection to Torah, his own personal chiyus, as they say, in, in Torah. What lights his neshama? So for some people, it's going to be more into Gemara B'iyun, and other people will be more into davening, other people maybe may find it in Chesed. But the context of Ein Torah, Torah, Der Yisrael, the Avir, Der Yisrael, the place where which that I agree entirely that that's the context. But the context, I think, is different for each person. Rav Bindi, do you want to add something to that? First of all, I want to echo what uh, Rav Targan and Rav said. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. And I give you, Scott Kahn, Rabbi Scott Kahn, a big for for doing this. And it's really a pleasure to be with everybody online. I think it, to some degree, depends on the context of who is coming and where they're going. Obviously, the context of doing it in Israel is enormous, and the opportunity for students in their transitional year between high school and college, they're not quite adults yet, but they're not really kids anymore, to sort of become a little more independent, independent in their thinking, independent in their navigation. That being said, I think there are two major goals that we share in common, um, specifically the people on this panel. One of them is I think a lot of these students are looking to find their place in the larger Jewish conversation. They want to understand exactly where they fit, where they fit in terms of their religious identity, Jewish identity, and so on. And second of all, I want to echo what Rav Boa said. I think that this is really the first time for those going to gap years in yeshivot and midrashot and seminaries and yeshivas, I think they have a chance to sort of explore the context of serious, significant Jewish learning without the burden of you know, comparison to college, tests, papers, homework, and the like. And it's, it's actually astounding to see how so many of them rise to the occasion. So that leads to the next question. Yes, Rob Jonathan, why don't you say something first? Uh, I was going to add in, I think, just the, I don't say the elephant in the room, but I think when a student comes to Israel for the year, they're there without their parents. And all the things that the wonderful uh, Rabbanim have said is that you can actually grow on your own with wonderful mentors from each of the different yeshivot of the tools that they have. But also this gap year, there's really no outside distractions. That leads to my next question, which you sort of answered, but I'd like to hear it perhaps more explicitly. Jonathan, we'll start with you. I'll I'll ask the question. I'm going to quote a parent, a theoretical parent. You've probably heard of this parent before. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to send my kid to 12 years of yeshiva day school. Are you really trying to tell me that a 13th year is transformative in a way that the previous 12 are not, in such a way that it's worth, A, spending money to go to Israel, and B, putting off college for a year or two? How would you answer that parent directly who says that challenge to you? So the first thing that comes to mind is like a credit card, where there's certain things that are like, they're priceless. And yes, they spent many, many dollars on education for 12 years. The one year or two or three, depending on where they go, it could be so much more valuable. And it could be that it should cost more because sometimes what the students get in their one, two or three years is more than what they got in the 12 years because one of the key factors is is the student is in that perfect age where they're ready to develop who they are as an individual. And again, potentially or hopefully without all the outside distractions to really see what that launch pad's gonna be for their next steps. Rabbo, it looked like you wanted to add something? Yeah, no, it, it, the, the age 18 and for some 17, you know, this is a time where you physically stop growing and you spiritually start growing in, in a way that you haven't beforehand. Um, besides the factor that it's a year that you're entirely focused on the Mide Kodesh, and it's not the, the younger brother to the secular education, which, which schools provide. Um, it's, it's the t- it's, you're right for this. 
it's the right time in a person's life, um, and they're surrounded in an all-encompassing environment, besides being in Eretz Yisrael, I already to mention, in a yeshiva with, with, the, with a whole staff that's just focused on you and your growth. So it creates uh, the, the environment and, and the, the platform for a person to really, really connect in the most serious and, 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 and unbelievably profound way to Torah. So I think that it's the right stage and the right setting for it. Look, first of all, you have to remember, with some exceptions, I suppose, kids are in high school because they have to be in high school. They don't choose to go to high school. This is the first year that these students get to choose. They get to choose whether they want to go and they get to choose where they want to go. The application and interview process can be very intense and students don't know that they're going to get in. And so the first point to make is when a student arrives here, and I can only speak for a writer, but I'm sure this is true for Levatora, Hakotel, and all the other yeshiva that are represented. Um, when you're sitting with 60, 70, 80 other students and everybody's there because they want to be there and they're motivated. They're not all necessarily inspired on the first day, but they're motivated. They want to grow. That's a completely different scenario from sitting in high school. That's first of all. Second of all, in the high school experience, look, we have a challenge, particularly in the modern Orthodox world, to the left, to the right, whichever label you want to put it, because the kids are, are, are contemplating college. And in order to succeed in getting into college, they have to have tests and papers and the like. And therefore, for a Jewish studies program at Yeshiva High School to compete with that, or 12 years, they also have to put them through a regimen of tests, papers, and the like. By definition, two things happen. The first thing is they're only learning a part of the day, Jewish studies. And second of all, it's very easy for a student at that much younger age to get focused more on the grades and the tests than on the study and the inspiration. And that's why when they get here, I do think that the yeshiva high schools do, do a, a tremendous job of, of giving over content. But I don't think it's fair to judge the high schools on whether or not they succeed in inspiring and motivating students. Obviously, a lot of these kids were motivated enough in high school that they want to come to Israel and study. But we're setting them up if we think that they can accomplish what, what happens in Israel. And, and I think the staffs in Yeshiva High Schools agree with this. In that case, let me follow up by asking another question. You talk about inspiration and growth and these important but somewhat vague terms. So, Ravbini, I'll ask you first. How do you define success? Obviously, every student is different. I'm not asking you to make a, a template for what success is. But when you talk about growth and inspiration, what do you want your students to be, by and large, generally, when the year is over? How will they be different? That's a great question. Look, there are two, there are two metrics. One is the objective metric, and one is the subjective metric. The subjective metric obviously depends on the student. Right? If a boy comes in completely motivated, completely inspired with certain skills and learning, and all he's coming for is to develop his skills and learning. I mean, that's when I went to yeshiva, that was my goal. I didn't have questions about Judaism. I wasn't struggling. I had close relationships with my Rebbeim already. The measure of my success was simply whether I developed learning skills in the particular subjects I was studying. Sometimes you get a student who's struggling with whether God exists. He's struggling or she's struggling with why bother? The success for that student is obviously very different. That's number one. Number two is I do think there are certain categories that all of us share, whether we define them sort of from day one or not. Personally, I want a student to walk away from the year in Israel in love. I want them to love Jewish learning. I want them to love Jew Jewish living. I want them to feel proud to be part of the Jewish people and of their Jewish identity. And I also want them to love Israel. And if you can accomplish those things with a student, then you've succeeded. The metric of whether you've succeeded becomes pretty apparent two, three years down the road. I agree with what Rev. Binney said, but i just add uh, two more points that I think are important. I think the most important part of the year in Israel is a person solidifying their identity. And obviously, what Rev. Binney said about loving all the things is very important for this, but I think really the first question that a Jew needs to ask himself is how central Judaism is to their life. Existentially, to what extent do they see themselves as created by God as their mission being to try and live up to what Hashem expects from them. And those are basic definitional questions which are unclear to many people as they move through the stages of their academic studies. So I think a person who leaves Israel with a clearer sense of identity as a Jew, their relationship with Hashem, central to their lives, if they have that and they maintain that, as Rabbini said, the metrics down the line, that's a success. The second point I want to make is 
I always say that a person who comes to Israel for the year and accomplishes their goals has failed. What I mean by that is when you walk into these kind of atmospheres that are so inspiring, that are exposing you to so many new ideas that you may never have been exposed to before, what should happen is that you develop a higher aspiration for yourself. You develop higher goals of what you can accomplish. And so I think a second aspect of success in Israel is that a person can tune into a higher level of what they can achieve as a Jew in their lives. Raboas, how about you? What's your feeling about this? No, I agree with everything that was said. I would, I would, I would add, very often we, we define orthodoxy as a, as a list of practices. Um, in, in fact, there's something called orthodox and something called orthoprax. Orthodox is a doctrine. It's our set of beliefs. And then there's orthoprax, which is our practices, what we do. Um, so two stages of, of success is, number one, for a person to, to gain out of the year in Israel a set of firm beliefs and practices that he's walking away with. And secondly, to connect those two, like the tefillin. You know, there shouldn't be a, a, a disconnect between what we believe and what we do, but rather our passionate beliefs should fuel our passionate actions. And we should be consistent Jews and not just have a checklist of what we do in Judaism, but feel passionate about how we do our Judaism. Is that manifest in any particular type of lifestyle? Obviously, Torah lifestyle can be understood, there's so many different ways of looking at it. Is there a particular type of lifestyle that Yeshivot would specifically emphasize for students such that you'd say that this is what we looked at as ideal, and we look at this perhaps as less ideal, assuming both types are keeping mitzvot? You're talking about like a flavor, a specific flavor. Yeah, a specific flavor. I, I think it's very hard for, I mean, many, many institutions do they try to mold their students to a specific brand. And I think that's, that's wrong. I think it's, it's proper to offer many different perspectives. And, and each person, you could be a, a Hasidish, you know, or a Litvish, you know, over the Shem. And there are different strokes for different folks. Some people are more into, are more into just dry halacha. And they get, they're passionate about dry halacha. And other people, they need to sing and they need to dance and they need to celebrate Torah in a different way. So I, I don't, I don't think that there's one brand of flavor. Rabbi Cohen, I'm also all these answers I think are wonderful. I'm just hoping that I guess a parent body shouldn't think that success comes after one year. It's a continuum that will, you know, be measured or always be reflected back. And I know for myself, when I started my career, I was actually a middle school teacher. And it could have been 10, 15, sometimes only 20 years later, do you actually see the success of the students because they have to go through their tahalich, their process to get to where they are. But if I had to choose one thing in particular after their time in Eretz Yisrael is that they're on fire for Judaism in each of the facets for whatever they're passionate about. You know, my good friend, uh, Rabbi Pesach Wiliki, with whom I ran Yisodia Torah for 11 years, likes to say, the cement isn't yet dry. And I think that's what you mean by that. Although I did say to Rabbi Judah Michelle, if it's dry for me, he goes, yes, dry for you. You're 50 years old. So at a certain point, I guess it does become dry. Rabbi Tarragon, you wanted to add something? Just picking up on what Rav Boaz was speaking about before, obviously every yeshiva, every Rebbe has their hashkafa, which means their outlook, which is how they connect to Judaism and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And I think most of the yeshiva try and educate in a way that helps each one, as Rav Boaz was saying, find their path. That having been said, to answer your question, Rabbi Khan, one of the challenging things I think our students face is they see different hashkafot. And they're trying to figure out for themselves, what does that mean? Who's right and who's wrong? And, and, and what does it all mean? And what I like to tell my students is, I believe there's the generic, common, basic level of being a proper Jew. And then there's the unique aspects that each person has to pursue. And it's important to know what's the former and what's the latter. And the former includes, A, keeping halacha, fulfilling mitzvot in a scrupulous and passionate way. Number two, knowing how to learn Torah, being a Talmud Chacham, and pursuing that as a long-term mission of developing oneself as a person who knows Torah. And number three, the identification I was speaking about before, seeing yourself as an Evid Hashem, trying to live your life in everything else based upon what you think Hashem expects from you. That's what all Jews ought to strive to be. Now there are Hashkafic questions. Some are very passionate about the state of Israel, some less passionate. 
some very interested in engaging the world and focusing on developing beyond oneself and Torah Mada and Torah Vavodah, and some less so. Those are the areas of debate within the Frum world where a person is, is living their life as a Frum Jew, and now you have to identify with which hashkafa you identify with. I think that's very important and helpful for people to understand what are the basic ABCs generics that it means to be a successful Frum Jew. So that leads actually to another question. And Rav Boas, I'm going to start with you. In some ways, you opened up this particular can of worms. I think it's very important. You're all saying this isn't true, but I think a lot of the time, people, at least stereotypically, assume that intellectual success in yeshiva is identified with or equated with spiritual success. And similarly, spiritual success is equated with moral or ethical success. So my question is, do you look at it like that? Would you say, this guy is a great Lamdan and Gemara, therefore the year was a success? Or I assume it's more nuanced than that. How do you look at a student like that? Um, certainly. First of all, I, I do believe that into intellectual success will lead to spiritual success, but everyone's on a different level of intellect. So what's intellectual success for one may be different for another. You have to know something to feel that 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 special connection with the Kaddish Baruch It can't just be this artificial, external, you know, um, uh, a ruchnius, what people just amorphously say is ruchnius. Rather, it should be based in something real. Um, and, and that's what the Chinuch in all yeshivas, you have to have a base in serious Talmud Torah. There's some people that, that will find it more in, in Tanakh and others in Gemara and some people in Jewish philosophy and others in other areas of study, but, but it, it needs to be real and, and, and seriously connected to the Makoros. Um, but again, different people of different intellectual capacities will reach it in different ways. So I don't, I don't think that there's one, one method that's going to be for everyone. I want to move on to a different topic then, physical safety. I'm sure a lot of parents, particularly after the terrible tragedy in Meron, and a lot of yeshivas were up in Meron. I used to send my yeshiva to Meron. I'm no different. And now, obviously, perhaps we know better. How do the yeshivot ensure physical safety? Obviously, as you've all mentioned, this was a year, this is a year when the guys were here without their parents, much more independent than they ever were before for most of them. The majority have not been in dorms. Now they can, in some ways, go away for Shabbos and do what they want. No one really knows exactly where they are at every single moment. I assume no one's tracking them. So how does any yeshiva ensure physical safety? And by ensure, that's not a fair question. A parent can't ensure physical safety either, but I guess look out for the physical safety of its students. Ruff Tarragon, what would you say to that? I think you said it well. Um, parents care very much about their children and do their best to try and anticipate what's going to happen and give guidelines appropriately. And I think every yeshiva tries to be a surrogate parent, which means I think every yeshiva tries to connect to the Talmudim as if they're their own children and care for them in the way they would care for their own children. And to try and anticipate, especially once they have this freedom in a country they're not that familiar with, what are the areas they need to be careful about? And I, I, I assume all the yeshiva give them that general guidance and specific guidance when there are situations that require specific guidance. And I, I know you should have the Kotal, and I assume the other would as well, go beyond what the average parent would be careful with because we feel we have to be more machmir than any of the parents because the children are away from home. And so we have to be more machmir than the most machmir parents. And we try to apply that the best we can being Chachamim, who the Gemara defines as people who are roas and nolat, who see what's going to happen the best we can, and to try and protect them in the best possible way. Meron is an excellent example. You know, people have been going there for, for tens of years um, without this happening. Obviously, people were aware of dangers, but the bottom line is that it was a place where things like this did not happen. Now, uh, sadly, a very big tragedy happened, and I'm sure all the yeshivot are going to check very, very carefully before permitting their students to go to Meron or things like this in the future. You know, just for, for I agree entirely with what Rabbi Tarragon said, but just for the parents watching, also understand that uh, all the schools are connected, all the yeshivot seminaries are connected to Masa, and Masa requires that before leaving the campus to go on any trip, there's something, an organization, Mokei Teva, that the, you, you need to get an Ishur. And they're going to be more mafia in a lot of things that maybe we would think you don't need to be mafia for. Sometimes it's funny, they make you take a Malava Neshek to places that you wouldn't think there's any danger whatsoever. That means an armed escort. So there's another level of protection on, on, on all the, the Yeshivot that you got to get an Ishur. You need to receive permission, a permit, 
to go out to any any you know any area. So the uh, Lokeh Teva was consulted before Meron, and groups were given the green light, you know, for this. Uh, we're always you know in hindsight, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, Yeshiva, for example. So if an, a big event like that, we'll send Madrichim with the guys as well, so they they have an escort from the Yeshiva. You know, if anything happens, Hebron, Parsha Chayesar is another example. So, you know, those that go there, so you send a Livui a little bit from the yeshiva, Yam Yam, a lot of yeshiva go from, from you know, from the, 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 the coast to coast, the Kinneret and the, the, uh, and the, the, the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Kinneret. So you, you, have a, you have a Lavim from the yeshiva that escort them because they, they don't know the lay of the land. Um, so beyond, beyond whatever yeshiva does with their Seich Aliyashar, there are also government ordinances that are in place to, to ensure their safety. To make sure that if the Seichal Yashar isn't quite so Yashar, there's somebody else looking out for you. Let's move on to emotional Can I just safety. Add because, oh, please, yes, for Benny. Because uh, this relates to something Rav Yonatan said before. Obviously, I agree with everything Rav Boaz and Rav Tarragon said. These vote employ a variety of systems that are definitely much more stringent than what many parents do. Um, that being said, you know, Rav Yonatan made the point that this is the first year where these kids are sort of away from their parents. Now, on the one hand, that's true. And on the other hand, it's not exactly true. When we came to our gap, when I came to my gap year, you know, long ago, there was no social media. There were no cell phones. That you were really isolated. You know, you talked to your parents if you were lucky a couple of times a week for five minutes. Parents are actually very involved with their students. They get a sense on a day-to-day basis um, I don't know if I can speak for all these vote, but I'm sure I can speak for the three represented on this panel. We spend a fair amount of time guiding parents, talking to parents, communicating with them about safety issues. And I think one of the sort of the foundational questions that you brought up originally, which is sort of how this year works, it really is a partnership. You know, Raviana then is right. This doesn't get done in a year. In other words, they come here for one year after 12 years of schooling. And then they go back to, let's say, four years of college schooling and beyond. And, and I think that this really, the success of this <clears throat> venture very much depends on sort of the follow-up after the year, which includes your relationship with the parent. It's partnership. And I think I, I could speak, I'm sure that all three schools on this program put a lot of energy into alumni follow-up, into connecting with parents, following up with parents, you know, over the years, so that you very often find <laughs> out that students are going through a struggle. And because of the relationships, I just got a call this week from a parent from Atlanta whose son is going through a difficult time. And I haven't talked to the boy in a couple of months, but I didn't, I wasn't aware of what happened the last few weeks. And because we have a relationship, right, through parents groups and parents programs, this kid is going to benefit from that partnership. So it's not a one-way street. I just want to add to what Rabini just said. The partnership you're talking about is the students' yeshiva parents. But from what I've seen from Yeshiva University is that there's such a tremendous partnership amongst all the yeshivot. And they're constantly in talks together and discussing things together so that all parents should feel that every yeshiva is really doing this together and collectively looking out for their children. The second thing is that also with uh, the many years of seeing so many wonderful things, and you're right, unfortunately, some tragedies. Every yeshiva is so professional in how they deal with things. They're very sensitive to things. And again, that's the partnership of all the yeshivas working together as one team, looking out for what's great for each one's uh, child. We'll get back to the panel discussion in just a moment. First... Let me remind you to please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Also go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. Just search for The Orthodox Conundrum, give it between zero and five stars, and write a sentence or two. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are available only to subscribers. You'll also be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, halakhically committed, and honest orthodoxy. So make sure you sign up to Patreon right away. It's just a few bucks a month, and you can cancel at any time. 
We're looking forward to your joining our team on Jewish Coffee House. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can help you start. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in a single day or record, relax, and let us do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffee House Productions will work for you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and sign up for a free 30-minute consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. Let's get back to our discussion. You've raised a number of points, all of you, although I want to first say that I'm a little bit disappointed because everyone's agreeing with each other. I was kind of hoping you'd be throwing chairs and saying he's wrong and this one doesn't know what he's talking about. But I suppose that being Mar Shalom Ba'olam, increasing peace in the world, is a better policy on the whole, even if it's perhaps a less exciting podcast. I want to move on to something else which was implied now, and that's the subject of mental health. How do you know, to the degree anyone can know, that something crosses the line from the need for pastoral counseling, so to speak, or a Rebbe's guidance, religious help, just talking to a teacher and moves into the realm where this requires a professional. This requires something which is outside of our wheelhouse. This is something which we need somebody who is not necessarily, maybe it is on staff, but not necessarily something which I can do. How does each yeshiva make that determination? Rabbini, why don't you start with this one? Sure. I guess there are three different pieces to this puzzle. First of all, it starts with the interpersonal relationship that you develop between the Rebbeim and the students. You know, and every yeshiva does this differently. I know, for example, at a right to every Rebbe sits with every student in his smaller she or his smaller class once a week. And sometimes they're learning as a chavruta, sometimes you know, as a partnership, sometimes they're talking about issues. So they get to know them really well, which allows you to begin to develop a sense of where there's something's amiss. That's first of all. Second of all, um, there are dorm staff that are aware that you know there are struggles and issues going on. Third of all, every yeshiva has its go-to sort of personalities: therapists, social workers, psychologists, sometimes psychiatrists. Um, you know, just this week we had a boy who's having a struggle, and he's going to see somebody as soon as he's out of quarantine, and that professional will give us an assessment of whether. He needs something more professional and so on. Um, By the way, before students get here, there are different stages of assessment of where a boy is holding or a girl. There are all sorts of legal questions as to when and what you're allowed to ask a student. The assumption is that even if some of it is after a boy or girl is already registered, before they get on that plane, you're very aware. You're meant to be very aware of, of sort of the larger issues, anxiety, depression, mental health issues. You know, sometimes you'll get a student who you just realize and you help the parents understand that he or she is just not ready to be away for a year. It happens sometimes. It's rare, but it definitely happens. I imagine all of them, certainly the ones represented, we don't rely on ourselves to make that assessment. We have professional go-to people who help us make that assessment. I would add two points to what Rabini said, agreeing with everything he said. Again, I'm sorry, Rabbi Khan, that I agree with Rabini. No, it's all good. It's all good. It's okay. So first of all, I resigned to this reality. We at Yeshivat Dakota, we have a psychologist on staff. And I think it's important that there be a mental health professional who's involved in the conversations amongst staff on the WhatsApp groups at the staff meetings, because a non-psychologist won't always know to recognize when an issue needs someone like that. So I think that's an important piece, which, which I, I don't know what goes on in other schools, but I think that's important. The second point I wanted to pick up on what Ravini was speaking about as there are parents watching this, I want to give a very important piece of advice. Ravini was speaking about how schools assess, before a student gets on the plane, who the student is. Now, there's no one in the world who knows a child as the parents know the child. The teachers know certain things, but the parents know best. And it's understandable that parents are not going to tell a school everything about the child during the application process. But once a boy has been accepted and is registered in a school, you're doing your son a disservice by not telling the school what issues and challenges the boy faces. Now, it could be parents say, I don't want my child to be branded, give him a chance to start fresh in Israel. No yeshiva in Israel is looking on branding a child. 
every yeshiva in Israel understands the child is starting fresh and it's a chance to start fresh and maybe not face the same kind of challenges. On the other hand, when a yeshiva knows what challenges a boy has faced in the past, it means we can, we can know to just have an eye open for that. So whether it's allergies or the issues where Vinny was speaking about anxiety or other kinds of issues or whatever it is, the more, as Vinny was saying before about the partnership, the more you share with the yeshiva, the better the yeshiva can do its job of helping each boy as an individual both acclimate to yeshiva. Everybody was talking about boys having a challenge right off, right out of the gate. The initial acclimation period can be challenging, and throughout the year. So it's understandable that parents have that hesitance, especially from the past and not wanting the boy 11th grade, 12th grade, etc. It's critical, especially with the boy far away from home, that yeshivot know what challenges, and that's how every yeshiva sees it. No one's interested in branding. Just to know the challenges each boy has and how we can help each one succeed in the best possible way. I know, Rav Boaz, you have something to add. I just want to quickly, Rav Tarragon, play devil's advocate. And even though I agree with what you're saying and all yeshivot do this, isn't there a negative side to this? In other words, it's obviously important to talk about very specific anxieties, very specific mental health issues, very specific intellectual challenges that a student might have. But I also think it sometimes happens that a student comes in, you say no one brands the student, but there is some assumption about what that student is in certain places. Some people will walk in and the school already has determined the student is the following type of person or has the following type of personality or has the following intellectual capacity. I want to relate to your point, Rev. Scott, because yeah. it's a critical yeah. question, the one you're asking. Every one of the yeshiva have seen how boys who've had issues A, B, and C in the past come to yeshiva and it's totally different. And there are many reasons why it's totally different. Starting over a new group of friends, new kind of atmosphere. We're so used to that, that we know that issues a boy has had in the past, very good chance will not be part of their experience in the future. But even if there's a 20% chance that they will be part of it, we should know to take that into account. And maybe we can set them up in a way that will be more successful. For example, if we know that a boy has anxiety issues, we'll know to make sure in the first few days to talk to him, is everything going okay, etc. If a boy sometimes feels he lacks personal ksharim, we'll know to set him up a chavrusa with one of the rabbeim, etc. So on the one hand, we're used to the fact that issues don't continue to be issues. That's what we expect, but we can make sure that issues that have been there, we have an eye out for. Rabbi I just want to emphatically say what Rabbi Tarragon said. Generally speaking, 90% of the issues, mental health issues that the guys come in with, we know about. And it's the 10%, the parents that, uh, that don't reveal, those are the hardest and most difficult issues. And haval on the kid, too bad. Like, because it takes a while till we realize what the issue was and the parents were hiding it. And it's just, it's, it's so to the detriment of the, of the child. And that's number one. Um, number two, I, I, was, I was once in a meeting of Roshe Yeshivot Hezder and they brought in a mental health specialist. It was a few years ago. And, uh, and he said, you know, it's, it's in the Yeshivot Hezder world, this was a few years ago, he said that in every other framework, every other Mizger, whether it's grade school, high school, the army, you have psychologists, you have mental health specialists, but in Yeshiva, you don't have that. And they were bemoaning that fact, this, this lecturer was bemoaning that fact. In all the American programs, you have psychologists, like social work, whatever was, was said, the specialists that deal with mental health. Um, we have every every few weeks uh, a, a mental health specialist from within the staff meets with a Rebbe with this, you know, and goes over the guys and sees what the issues are and how they're progressing. And the third point is that it used to be maybe 20 years ago, you know, it was taboo to see a, a you know a therapist. And today the guys are comparing notes with each other. Today it's like a known thing that people go to therapists. There's no busha in it. And people are not are, are are hardly embarrassed when they when they have to see a therapist. It's something that's masesh of and happens all the time. So there's no reason for for hiding it. It's now now it's a, it's a great year to actually deal with these issues. And I would say that that the the great success of the year in Israel is not just being a a you know a Talmud Chacham a Ben Torah, but it has to be built on being a Ben Adam, being a person first. Being a healthy human being, that's the basis for being a healthy Jew. I think that's a very important point. Now, you mentioned before that all of you are very careful to stay in touch with your students, which, of course, I know in your yeshivot is true. I'll ask Rabbi Cohen, in general, is this true from what you've seen in yeshivot in general, that yeshivot are good at 
staying in touch. I don't mean that every shiva stays in touch with every single student for the next 10 years daily. Obviously, that's not realistic. But at the same time, one of the complaints that people have, and perhaps it's not true, but one complaint which I have heard is, oh, they go to Israel for the year. There isn't enough, so to speak, follow-up. What's your feeling about that? Is there enough follow-up or is there follow-up? I don't know what enough means, but is there follow-up in general? You're asking an excellent question. And I, I know for myself, I'm working with probably 800 to 1,200 students a year. And I develop a rapport, I would say with probably 600 of them, like really, really well. And to be able to continue that, it's hard. The numbers start tweaking. So the ones who are proactive students and outgoing, I think it's easier to keep that relationship and it encourages the rebellion. And I believe, I don't believe, but I know that each yeshiva has their alumni pinpoint person who then also keeps in touch and runs events, but it's a two-way street. And uh, my colleagues here I've been speaking with and know the stories where they're very much on top of what's going on even when they leave the, you know, the walls and they're very much in touch, whether it's them, whether it's their Urbane, whether it's their alumni. We even have a system in YU where we have students from those yeshivas who are watching after their boys uh, when they get to YU and running events and keeping in touch and there's communication. It's never going to be a perfect system. And there's always going to be those that are maybe potentially feel like a little bit left out or not. But the yeshivas put in 120% to get to as many, if not all, to the best that they can and to ensure that that relationship continues. Yes, Raboas. I love every once in a while I get to see Rabbi Tarragon in his office. And he has these pictures surrounding him of uh, all the weddings that he's performed, all these uh, these these Talmidim of his. I don't know if he performed all the weddings, but uh, uh, the pictures of his, his married his married Talmidim. And I think Life Cycles is a wonderful opportunity to realistically stay in touch with your students. So whether it's uh, an engagement, a marriage, a, a bris, now some of them bar mitzvahs, their kids, you know, when there's a, an occasion or a chas on the opposite, if someone's sitting shiva or a parent, if these are opportunities to connect when it's the most important in their lives. There's no way you can stay in touch with, you know, we have now 1,200 alumni. There's no way you could stay in touch with on, on a monthly basis with all the alumni. You could send out, and we do, and, and a lot of yeshivas do, they send out monthly or weekly, um, you know, what's going on in, in, in the base measures, what's going on in the yeshiva, highlight, spotlight on alumni. You could do that, but you're not going to reach them all. To be react, you have to know, you, they have to feel the door is open, always, always open for them to come. And not just to physically visit, but to, to write an email or WhatsApp, to pick up the phone and to call and reach out. And I think that all the yeshivas are very good at being reactive. Being proactive, you got to weigh it. There's certain events that you do and then and the life cycles. It's very hard. Everyone's going to visit the guys in YU because you go to YU all the time in the non-corona year. Uh, then you have like in, in Araita, they have these like secular college uh, trips where they, you know, drop off in, from secular college to secular college. Which is which is wonderful, but again, the one to one is is what where it's at. I just did this summer. We ha I had I decided after a, a year of disconnect to do a summer of reconnect. Right, code laughing. So I went uh, literally cross country driving uh, from city to city and visiting visiting individuals, going to their homes. We had a few events, but the events were were, were almost meaningless compared to the when you go to a person's home, you see him and his wife and his children. And you reconnect in, in a very profound way. So I, that that's it's amazing, but it's impossible to do it to the level that, that they really need. But we hope that we empower them to be mature adults and to be growing on their own. And that's uh, that we want them to be growing on their own when they leave. The more support you can give, the better. So two things to think about. One is, I remember um, before we started Araita, uh, Arita has now entered its 14th year. So you're talking 15, 16 years ago. I had this stage where we were researching. You know, was there a need for another program? Was there something that wasn't to be accomplished? How do you learn from other programs, mistakes, et cetera? I remember I was talking to one fellow who's involved in particularly Shia, and I asked him, like, what's your goal? Like, okay, you've, you've been around for a few years. You have X number of hundreds, whatever. And he said to me, you know, I don't know. Uh, 
I, I, I'm hoping, you know, that the boys, whatever he said, Balabas, love to learn, learn regularly, go to Minion, whatever his recipe was. So I said, them, okay, you have X number of alumni, what percentage would you say are succeeding? And he said, look, I couldn't give you an exact number, but I think it's a pretty significant statistic. Now, I was torn between two emotions. Part of me said, I think that's very honest of him. I do. And I echo what Boaz just said. How do you, I mean, we have now about 700 alumni. It's easy to talk when you have 700, you have 10 Rebbeim, you can create a metric. What's going to happen when we have 7,000? I don't know. It's a good question. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, if you spoke to a businessman and you said to him, you know, he, you wanted him to invest in your company. He said, well, I don't know if I'm succeeding, but I think it's pretty good. He'd laugh at you, right? We have a responsibility. If we've set goals for ourselves to create a system, and maybe maybe it's impossible for us with our budgets and our salaries to be able to create the system on our own. That's a good question. Maybe the Jewish community has that responsibility, but every educational institution, whether it's Yeshiva High School, a summer camp, or a Yeshiva in Israel, has responsibility to define what its goals are and to create a system so it can measure whether it's succeeding. Measure it in statistics and percentages, et cetera. That's first of all. Second of all, I used to tell, and I know that that's a controversial topic, but I think it's important that we be honest, that we need to, we need to work harder. And, and we do have such a system, but I don't think we should get into different people's systems. I think all of us on this panel are actually pretty good about this. Like, of course, it's being modest, but I've been out there. Not everybody does what, what Leva Torah does, so I get it. But we need to do that. That's first of all. Second of all, I used to tell parents, this is not a one-year program. It's a five-year program. Because if the student goes back to secular college and we haven't developed a significant rapport with them, if we don't have a relationship with the parents, if we're not in touch with them, then four years of secular college, you could debate whether this happens at YU or if you're not a little spoiled. But if you're going even to colleges with serious Jewish campuses, challenges that these kids face on secular campuses are unbelievable. You know, in Israel, for us, it's about how do your kids navigate the army? But in the army, at least, you know, for many of them, there's a hazard system, right? But kids who go to secular college, they don't always have that option. So it's a partnership between the JLIC and Chabad and so on and so forth. I don't even think that's true anymore. I don't think it's a five-year program. I think that until a student gets married and you see who they married, you have to find a way to be in touch. So what that means is you've got, I don't know, a 10-year radius, something like that. And, and you have to figure out, and it could be that you need to sort of focus on the numerics of how many students you have each year and create a system that works for that number over a period of time until they get married. Once student gets married and you realize he married a firm girl, whatever that means, and he's in a Jewish community, et cetera, then you can stay in touch through like the simcha and whatever else it is. That's a very important point. Okay, Rav Tarragan, you want to add something? Yeah, I think everyone's really spoken beautifully and wonderfully, but I'll just add two points. The first is where Vinny just said, I think life is about anchors. There's a current that pushes people. And when you've anchored yourself through relationships, not just through intellectual ideas, but relationships, could be a chavruta, could be a rebbe, parents, these anchors are critical. And the ultimate anchor is a family, wife and children, which puts you in a certain place. Yeshivot are critical in that intermediate stage, being the spiritual anchor for people as they face these currents, especially as Rabbini was describing secular college, etc. Um, I think as Rabbini said, um, all the yeshivot work hard, doing their best to stay in touch. Um, I can say what I do um, in case it helps anyone else. And, and, and just uh, Boaz was talking about life cycle events, which I think are critical. I'm in touch with each boy, at least on their birthday, their anniversary, and the birthdays of each of their children. And I think that those are very useful ways of ensuring that at least then you're in touch. And I find that most of the boys respond and that opens up a door. And so I think from the get-go, it means that they know that their important dates are important to us. And B, when you touch base with them, it gives them a chance because ultimately it's up to them if they want to communicate and keep it. But it gives them a chance, as Rabini was saying before, the boy from Atlanta, I think he said, or from, you know, who's having a, a certain issue. So it gives them a chance to say, hey, Rebbe, I'm having an issue. Let's talk about it. And so I'm sure all these should have their own way of doing that. But I think that's basically the point. Yeshivot 
work hard to make sure that they're continuing their Kesha with each boy, the intensity of that Kesha is going to depend on the degree to which the boy is interested in it continuing. I'd like to move in a slightly different direction now, discuss what might be a somewhat controversial topic. A lot of parents, I've heard from many parents, are actually kind of secretly worried that their kid's going to become more religious than they are, is going to know more about Judaism than they do, and will no longer respect them. And that itself, or for other reasons, can often be the source of conflict. And very often, a guy will go to Israel, he'll come back more religious, and now he might want to come for a second year in Israel. He might want to go to Yeshiva University instead of the college he originally was planning to go to. He might want to go to the Israeli army. He might have other religious needs. For example, he might be careful about Kolisha, and his parents can't handle that. It might just be that he wants to go to Minyan every day. How do you think a yeshiva should respond when there are conflicts religiously between a child who had just come back from yeshiva and the parents who sent him there in the first place? Look, first of all, parents, I think, want and deserve to feel heard. If a student gets deeply connected to their Jewish identity, Jewish tradition, Jewish learning, religious, from whatever label you want to use, and that means that their relationship with their parents suffers, then something's wrong with their religious identity, right? A student who leaves their year in Israel should start out with this incredible sense of gratitude to the parents who gave them this year and everything that they've gained. And by the way, if everybody's doing their job, it doesn't come as a tremendous shock. Look, first of all, I'm a big believer in parents visiting Israel and when they can. And I think that, you know, I, I know what we do. We invite the parents to join us, moms and dads. They can sit in on the classes. We want them to meet the Rebbeim so that when these things come up, they have who to talk to. That's first of all. Second of all, when a student comes back and wants to take on certain halachot or stringencies, whatever it might be, it's fair to understand that the person that the parent might be experiencing or feeling that the student is being, basically saying to them, the Judaism I gave you isn't good enough for you. But that's not at all what the student is saying. He's just found something that he wants to commit to. So the simplest way to begin to resolve that is for them to talk and to communicate. And, you know, I know I'm sure that we all do this to some degree, but, you know, we have a few sessions. We talk to students and sometimes you have individual students who've sort of gotten to a certain place. So you sit with them and talk to them and discuss with them how they have to be sensitive to their parents and how, you know, they owe their parents a lot and so on and so forth. And, and the second is just in terms of what was already discussed here. Sometimes a student will cause, call you up with a difficult question. You know, the bar mitzvah that's four miles from the house and the parents are driving there and they insist that the boy come, but the boy now doesn't want to drive on Shabbat. Or the kid who was going to this camp and now he feels uncomfortable going to that camp. 90% of these issues get resolved when people have healthy conversations and communications. The challenge is to start that dialogue way before they get back after their year. I agree with everything Rav Vinny said. I'll just add a couple of more points in addition. I think there are two points that I, I assume all of our yeshiva make to boys and, and I assume the seminaries to girls. The first is that a boy needs to remember that there's no one in the world who cares as much for him as his parents. There's no one in the world who will go to the mat for you, no matter what your situation is, wherever and whatever you are as your parents. And that's a very, very important thing to remember, even as kids are going through their adolescent years. And for some kids, adolescence can be drugs and alcohol. And Halavai, the biggest problem of adolescence should be that a boy wants to be more religious. So again, parents should realize this may be part of a boy finding his own identity, which is healthy. But it's important in that period for children to remember that their parents are the only people they really have in their corner. And that even if a parent disagrees with a child about the right way for them to translate their religious commitment, the parent has the, be the child's best interest in mind. At least that's how they see it. And that's an important thing for a boy to remember. The second point I make to the boy is, we begin our Shmona Esrei by saying, Baruch Ata Hashem Elokeinu Avoseinu. And then we say, Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov. The only way we connect back to our ancestry is through our parents. If we can't figure out how our religious identity is a continuation of our parents, every parent wants their child to be better than they are. I want my children to be better than I am. But if a child doesn't see himself as a continuation of their parents' religious identity, they're guaranteeing their own children won't do it either. And so what a child needs to realize is, religiously, I'm a continuation. 
even if I'm expressing it differently and parents need to realize on their hand, that part of a child owning their identity is knowing that they're choosing how to express it. And one last point I want to make that I think is very important is, I think all the yeshivot on this call are yeshivot who aim to help deepen a boy's commitment to the hashkafa they were raised with. Meaning there may be some yeshivot who are trying to change the boy's religious identity. I think many yeshivot, the ones in this call, we're trying to intensify a boy's commitment to the outlook they already grew up with. So a parent can be rest assured that the yeshiva is not trying to flip them out, meaning out of that hashkafa. And as Rabini said before, because of that, parents should be part of the process. And the more you're part of the process, the more you're engaging the rabbeim, the more you'll understand what the rabbeim want. You'll feel comfortable. You can feel like you're part of this journey for your child. Now, within your hashkafa, if you as a parent may not take all of the areas as seriously as others do, you shouldn't expect your son to draw the line in the same place. Meaning, you're a modern Orthodox. You know there's some modern Orthodox people who take Talmud Torah and Allah very seriously, as Rabbi was saying before, and others who take it less seriously. Can you and should you really expect your son to have to choose the exact balance you've chosen for yourself? If you do, you should expect your child to feel like you're trying to force him to be a replica of you. And that is almost ensuring that the child will feel that it's not him. And just to conclude my remarks, it's so interesting that God tells Avraham, lech lecha, find yourself by abandoning your father's home. But in the end, where does Hashem want to take Avraham? To the land his father was headed to anyway, to Eretz Canaan. And the message is, to find yourself, you have to be willing to go anywhere. When you have that, ultimately you find that where you need to be going is the direction your family was headed in anyway, maybe even on a higher level than past generations, but in the same direction. Isaiah was hesitant to answer because I was that kid. Meaning I, I grew up in a non-Shomer Shabbos uh, home, and I came home with a, a whole new sense of idealism and Torah mitzvahs, and so I could totally relate to that kid who, who, who goes through that, everyone to their own level, but it's absolutely correct that we need to build ourselves. Though I would say that it's elokeinu elokevoteinu. First, it's, you have to make it your God, and then it's the God of your parents. So a person has to forge his own identity, and yes, build on the, uh, the generations of the past. There are a couple of very important questions that were submitted to me by parents that I need to ask before we conclude. These are not easy questions. In fact, they're probably uncomfortable questions, but they are crucial, and I'm glad parents submitted them. So let's get to them. The first one is about preventing sexual abuse in yeshivot. What do yeshivot do and what can yeshivot do to protect their students from sexual abuse? In my own yeshiva, towards the very end of my tenure there, towards the end of the existence of the yeshiva, Awareness grows, and I remember realizing that I really shouldn't be having meetings one-on-one with the door closed, given that our classrooms and offices had solid doors without windows. These are things that you learn as time goes on. What do yeshivot do to make sure, to the best of their ability, that sexual abuse isn't a problem? Yes, Raboas? I mean, it's shocking. I, 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 you have to hire the best staff, obviously. You, know, you have to trust them implicitly with everything. And if there's ever any hints of, of misconduct in any way, then you, 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 need to, you need to move on. But uh, yes, we put in windows in all of the, in all of the, in all of the doors of all the offices and classrooms. There is a, a very serious system of oversight in terms of any of these things. Thank God I can't, I can't point to any cases, but, uh, but this is the issue. Even if there isn't, there should never be a chance that there would be a claim that there is in Yeshiva. Right. But, Absolutely no tolerance. There's, um, there's, a, there's a system. All of us are part of the Yeshiva University program, part of Masa. There are systems that are employed. Um, for example, we're obligated to appoint, to appoint an officer, who a staff member, who is the go-to person for students. It's not allowed. I'm pretty sure it's not allowed, but I know it. I write that's not. For a Rebbe, uh, an educator who directly educates the students to be that person. And as part of the orientation, students are made aware of who this person is and that they 
you know, if they if they have any issue, if they have any suspicion, if something bothers them, etc. Um, their orientations. I'm sure. I'm sure we all do this, but there's a an orientation that we do not only for our our, our full time staff, you know, adults, but our dorm counselors. Some of them are, you know, sort of boys who just finished the army and the like. Um, additionally, part of the obligation that we have as part of the Atlantic Treaty and other uh, sort of organizations we're committed to, every staff member has to go through a process. The, the police, you know, just like when somebody makes Aliyah to Israel, there's an investigation that goes on. They want to be sure who's coming to their shores. The same thing happens when you hire a person for an educational institution. You submit it to the police and they have to review it and make sure that a person has no history and so on and so forth. The world is coming terms with this phenomenon little by little in ways that didn't exist 20 years ago. Uh, we also, my office, we took down the door and put an office on the door. All the Rebbeim have, we do the same thing. And in fact, there's one classroom left that we realized had a window, but it was not see-through. So we're changing the window. Not because, God forbid, I think there's an issue, because we want students to feel comfortable, we want parents when they visit to come, and, and you want to prevent that type of thing from ever being a possibility. Okay, let me just clarify that when I said that I got nervous about leaving the door closed, it wasn't because, God forbid, I had heard about any sort of issue in the yeshiva. It was simply greater awareness and the realization that we can't do this. We need to have open doors or at least windows on the doors when people are meeting. It wasn't because of any specific instance. Let's move on to a final issue for today, which is drinking in yeshivot. A parent communicated to me her concerns about drinking in yeshivot. And particularly on Purim, people say that, or at least this person was arguing, that parents are sometimes surprised to find out from their students that even if the yeshiva has an alcohol policy on Purim, it's often thrown to the wind, or perhaps even if there is a policy, the rabbis on a Shabbos might ignore that. What's your feeling about that? Obviously, I'm not speaking about any of your yeshivot per se. I'm speaking about yeshivot in general. So I don't want to put anyone on the spot. But what's your feeling about alcohol policies in general? Rabbi Terrigan, do you have uh, an opinion about that? We have no tolerance policy on alcohol, for sure, anything more than that. And um, we haven't had experiences with our boys involved in these things, Baruch Hashem. Um, obviously, Shabbat is a time where people do have a little bit of wine, which is different than what's going to happen during the week. Um, and so, yes, Shabbat is different. And clearly, Purim is different than Shabbat. We send a letter to parents before Purim. We speak about what the options are for the boys and boys are only allowed to drink if they have their parents approval. And even if they have their parents approval, they're only allowed to drink, you know, a reasonable amount. We're very much engaging the parents on it. Um, obviously, Purim is different than Shabbat, which is different than a regular day. Uh, and frankly, Purim in Yeshiva is a, an opportunity for Purim to be done in a holier, more pristine way than you have when you're not in Yeshiva. Um, so it could be there are things that in yeshiva work that out of yeshiva are totally unacceptable. And that's one of the points that I assume all the yeshiva would make to boys about what Purim can be in yeshiva, but only if it's within the unique atmosphere that yeshiva is. But I think a critical point is just communicating with parents and making sure that we as surrogate parents are making sure that a boy's real parents are comfortable with the decisions that a boy is going to make together with them in these kind of sensitive moments. I promised you that we'd finish at 10 o'clock, and of course it's 10.03, so my apologies, but I want to thank all four of you, Rabbi Jonathan Cohen, Rabbi Boaz Mori, Rabbi Benny Freeman, Rabbi Ruben Terrigan, for being so forthright and honest and really giving a nice explanation of the questions and, and confronting them fairly and honestly. It was wonderful having you here today, and I'm sorry I didn't get through all of my questions. Perhaps we'll have to do it again, but thank you very much. Thank, thank you for hosting us. Shana Tova to everyone. Shana Tova. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. 
Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.